Hey friends, welcome to RUF. Um, since it's an intimate gathering tonight, sort of like a RUF house show or something, uh, but welcome. So uh, tonight we're, we're going to take a little break from the book of Revelation, and I want to talk about something tonight that I think is really important to, not just my own story, but really important to, uh, I would guess, some of your stories, and definitely this, our story as a church in 2018 at large. And what I want to talk about is the, the temptation or the struggle of living for your image or living for your reputation or living for how others see you. You can call it uh, image, reputation, approval versus living for the gospel or living in line with the gospel. And to do that, uh, we're going to look at a passage uh, out of Galatians chapter 2. If you know the book of Galatians, this is where it's a kind of a weird but beautiful moment where the Apostle Paul confronts and even rebukes uh, the Apostle Peter because he has given into what we're talking about. He's given into caring more about his own self-image, especially with the, uh, with the Jews or the Judaizers of the day, instead of um, linking arms with and standing with the Gentiles in that day. So we're going to read Galatians 2. I'm reading verses 11 to 14 if you want to follow along. It's a short passage. Here's what uh, Paul writes. He says, but when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let me pray for us, and I want to get into this for a little bit together tonight. Let's pray first. <clears throat> Father, we do. We thank you for um, on a busy week, a heavy week with school, no doubt, uh, a rainy night. Lord, I thank you for those um, that have braved the weather, that have braved... Uh, their school load and have come here. And Lord, you have gathered us here tonight for a reason. Um, you care about us. You love us. Um, you want to um, not just remind us of the gospel, but you want to bring every part of our lives uh, in step with it. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think about this one specific, not just passage, but this one specific topic or idea, that you would richly bless us here, that you would be the one who sends your spirit without measure. Um, not just to teach us, but to change us. Lord, we long to be changed. We need to be changed. And uh, Lord, we know that in and of ourselves, we can't do it. We need your son, Jesus, and we need your spirit. Um, so I pray that as we gather here tonight, that you would bless us in ways um, that are beyond even what we imagined. And so Lord, we pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So I was thinking about uh, just a small story from my life that kind of hits at this idea of how easy or tempting it is to live for your image or live for your uh, other people liking you or seeing you or thinking highly of you as opposed to living for the gospel. And I was thinking about this a small moment, but to me it's a weird story, but it just kind of illustrates it for me. Uh, I remember being in seminary and I was trying to become friends. Seminary is sort of a weird time where you're like trying to make, you know, your college friends aren't there with you. You're trying to make new friends. And uh, there were these two guys. We were going, I was married at the time. And we were, my wife and I were going to drive these two guys that I really wanted them to like me. I really liked them a lot. 
to this lake party basically for like on a Saturday, and we're just going to go hang out with some other friends or uh, possible friends for the week or for the day. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm driving. I need to have like a fire playlist. Now, this is back in the day where you're, we're still working with CDs. We didn't have Spotify. We didn't have smartphones. So I, I, I kind of went through all of the possible CDs that I thought that these guys, their names were Harris and Trevor, that I thought that Harris and Trevor would like. And so I, I collected like, a, like five CDs, loaded them in the CD changer. We got in the car. And what was hilarious was... As we're driving, just from the back seat, we're probably an hour into the trip. Harris is like, I mean, this is a really, I'm enjoying this. I don't, it's probably some Dave Matthews CD. He's like, I'm really enjoying this Dave Matthews. But he's like, did you actually like pick these CDs just for us? Because this doesn't really seem like what you're into. And I was like, those moments were, do you lie or do you play it cool? And I definitely lied. I definitely lied. I was like, no, man, this is just what I'm into. And it was one of those moments where it was like a small moment where I've had way more profound moments of, you know, living for your image or living for the approval of others versus living confidently and freely in the gospel. And this is what we're coming uh, to tonight. This is our passage. This is exactly the temptation that Peter finds himself in, that Paul confronts. No doubt there were times in Paul's life where it could have easily gone the other way. But in our passage, Paul's confronting Peter because he's doing this very same thing. He's caring more about what these uh, Jewish, these Judaizers, as they're called, the circumcision party, care about him. And so he acts hypocritically. He acts uh, with a divided self. In other words, he, he loses himself. He loses himself in the gospel, and he lives for their approval. He lives for his image. So what I'm talking about is uh, the temptation of that, and then I want to talk about the invitation uh, in this passage, and I want to talk about the exhortation in this passage. So the temptation, the invitation, and then the exhortation. Let's go first with the temptation. Here's what we have to see is that in that moment, Peter uh, forgot two things were happening. That uh, when you have a forgotten identity, who am I? And when you have a deep insecurity, what are these people going to think of me? Uh, It leads us to look for our identity in the same places that our culture does instead of looking to Christ and to the gospel um, for our identity. So here's Peter, and he's he's forgotten his identity, he's forgotten uh, the gospel, and he's insecure. He's insecure about what this, this powerful party, this political, powerful political party with a lot of reputation and kind of cool, coolness, what they're going to think of him. And, and instead, when you do that, the temptation is to look to the ways that our culture, in our case, our culture tells us to define ourselves or to identify ourselves or uh, to look for our image or look for our security. And there are, I think, four of them that I have. Here are the different uh, things, maybe messages or really lies, we would say, but the, the temptation or the tempting messages our culture tells us about our identity or about our image. Here's the first one. I am how I look. I am how I look. In other words, uh, there's a deep, often in our culture, there is a deep dissatisfaction with how we look. Like I had this moment just the other day, I was checking out of a store and I was, weirdly, I was checking out, and I was kind of embarrassed of my, my, like, what I was buying. And so I just told the lady, the register, um, you know, I'm, I'm starting this diet. And, uh, and she was like, really? She was like, you don't look like you need to lose weight. And I was like, I wanted to, like, give her a hug. Like, bless you. I love you. We're best friends now. But I realized in that moment, like, I, I as a 37-year-old man with four kids, like, it doesn't, like, I'm married, been married going on 15 years. Like, what am I doing? You know? Like... It's okay. Like, I can do the dad bod thing and be fine. Like, but there's still that temptation for us to, to think, I am how I look. There was a study done in the UK a couple years ago that said this, that 75, 
75% of girls, 12 to 17, think they not want but need plastic surgery. And 85% of guys believed that better bodies would make them happy. And I don't know how that translates, but I would think it would be just as high, if not higher, in the U.S. And that's the question for us, is how much time or how much do we look to the way we look to find our security, to be okay with ourselves. So first, I am how I look. Second, I am what I wear. Listen to the way this guy, Vaughn Roberts, says it. I love the way he puts it. He says, clothes once reflected an identity that was already fixed. People wore what everyone else wore in their profession or station of life. Think about shows like Downton Abbey, Victoria, like that's so true. Now, increasingly, clothes have become a means of creating an identity. I can choose who I want to be by the clothes that I wear. That's where, like, I love Twitter. Twitter is a beautiful place. And I was trying to find, like, the best one. I couldn't find it. But, you know, you've seen the jokes of dress for the job you want. And then there's something ridiculous said after that. Um, But I think if we were being honest spiritually, dress for the job that you want, we would say what we want is to be accepted. What we want is to be thought highly of. Like, I'll never forget a moment when I was my first year at Georgia Southern doing RUF, and my group was what you could call a very, like, it was before hipster was a term, but it was, like, a very um, cool group that was, like, very alternative. Like, they were known at Georgia Southern. It was kind of a beautiful thing. Where, like, you knew where RUF was because there would be a crowd of about 20 people ahead of 20 people outside before just smoking, and then, like, that's how you knew where RUF was, and then you would come in. And so here I kind of show up. You've heard me tell about the official preppy handbook story. I'm like fresh off my official preppy handbook phase, and I'm wearing what you wear. I'm wearing wallabies. And I remember going to large group and wallabies, and this guy came up to me afterward, and he was like, ah, you're a wallabies guy, huh? Love that, man. I'll be back. And I I remember thinking like, yeah, I'm a wallabies guy. And then I remember thinking, no, like that is not what I need to find my security, right? Like, I don't need to find my security in what I wear or the impression that I make of on what I wear. Um, if I'm defined by that, I'm, I'm missing or I'm out of step with the gospel. So I am how I look. I am what I wear. Here's, there are two more. I am what I buy. Uh, this is where we can talk about consumerism, right? That tells us basically our happiness comes from a certain brand or that next purchase or that next big thing that we're going to buy. And we kind of reduce ourselves to, I'm the kind of person who buys you fill in the blank. I'm the kind of person who buys this or buys that. And we can find our identity in that. And then the last one is I am what I do. Uh, I am what I do. There's a story that I love, uh, Floyd, Mary, uh, Floyd Patterson. Well, there's a, a story out of his life when he would go to a fight like a you know huge fight, he would bring a bag of disguises so that if he lost the fight, he could kind of put on some sort of disguise and get out of the building without anyone seeing him or you know recognizing him just in case he lost. And I think when I heard that story, I was like, man, that is so true for us. That sometimes we are so wrapped up in what we have done or what we are doing or our resumes or our successes or how we're trying to come across in the things that we're doing that we lose sight of our identity. And we become human doings instead of human beings who have inherent you know, worth and inherent value. And what this does is it, it really it 
kills our relationship with each other. Because what happens with each other is, is our friends or our potential acquaintances get reduced to accessories. Like, you, we treat each other like you're an accessory to my image. Like, do you make me look better? Then I'll identify with you. Do you make me look kind of uncool? Then I'm not going to identify with you. Um, we've been, we become controlled, and I think this is a real thing for us. We become addicted and controlled to coolness instead of kindness. Where we are constantly thinking, is this cool? Does this make me look cool? Is this a cool thing to do? Is this a cool thing to say? Instead of thinking, how can I show the kindness of Jesus today? Like, how can I show the kindness Jesus has shown to me in the world today? I don't forget a pastor saying one time, you're not cool. You're a Christian. You're not cool. You are a Christian. And identifying as a Christian kills your coolness. It's supposed to. Uh, and then it also, God... In this equation, when we're living, when we've forgotten the gospel and we're letting our, the culture kind of tell us where we find identity and image, then God becomes simply a vehicle to the things that we want. God becomes his own kind of accessory to the life that I want. Um, so what's the invitation? So that's the temptation. What's the invitation? Well, what Paul does is he sees this happening in Peter's life, and he gives him the invitation to simply repent and remember the gospel. To simply repent of, of living in that way and to remember the gospel. To remember that he belongs to Jesus, not because of anything he wears, not because of what he does, not because of who he identifies with, not because of any of those things, not because of what he has, that he belongs to Jesus purely because of the mercy and grace of Jesus and what Jesus has done for him. And he, he reminds him, he invites him to remember the gospel. And I think remembering the gospel, it does something to our self-image. It does really a couple of things. It, first, the starting place is we remember that we were made in God's image. Like, I'll never forget, I had an intern who would meet with, there was um, especially a group of Korean-American students, and they would come to RUF, and they felt super out of place. This is a very white space. And they felt, there were numerous conversations that where they felt, if I'm going to be accepted in this place, I need to take on whiteness. And there's a certain, if, you, if you've ever read much around, especially the immigrant experience or the Korean-American experience, uh, especially, like if you've ever watched Fresh Off the Boat or read that memoir, there's a real thing where you can begin to believe as a minority that if you are not white, that you're, you're, you're not, that you're, you have nothing valuable to offer. Unless you can assume and take on whiteness. And I'll never forget this intern would sit down with these students and he would say, he would take them to the Psalms and he would take them to Psalm, I believe it's 139, and say, you are uh, fearfully and wonderfully made. You have worth not because you look white. You have worth because you look like God. You are made in the image of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's the first thing. Remembering the gospel. This is where we come from. Second... We've all broken that image. I love the way that N.T. Wright says it. He says, basically, we have not imaged God well in this world. We have distorted what God is like. Because we've been so self-absorbed and because we are sinful, we have distorted the image of God in this world. And we have broken God's image and we ourselves are broken. And in our brokenness, we assume God's place. We reduce people to accessories. We reduce ourselves to what we just said, these cultural ideas of where image, where identity comes from. Third, we all have that hope 
of the image of God uh, being restored in Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. In our sin, in our brokenness, we took God's place. And we've distorted that. We've distorted his image. But in Christ, what Christ has done is he's taken our place. Then when Christ goes to the cross, he takes my place and your place that we might be restored to the image of God. And then fourth, if we're in Christ, that means that image is already being restored and will be fully and finally restored in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, I don't know if you watched the Oscars on Sunday night. We, the interns and I and my wife and uh, Molly watched it with, and through a very broken stream on Hulu. It was very painful. But uh, Coco won. It won for Best Animated Picture. I don't know if you've seen it or not. But the story of Coco is fascinating when it comes to thinking about this, because essentially without giving the movie away, the story is this little kid, 12-year-old Miguel, and he's obsessed with this uh, famous musician, Ernesto de la Cruz, who kind of made it huge. And Miguel's all, it's all he wants to be. He plays. All he wants to do is become a famous musician like Ernesto de la Cruz. So he's you know, doing everything he can, even against his own family, even against his own friends, to, to pursue and chase this dream. And then through this random series of events, he actually goes into the, what's called the land of the dead, and he meets, he finally gets to meet Ernesto de la Cruz, and he realizes very, very quickly that the way that, the things that Ernesto did to get where he was um, were unspeakable. And that the kind of person Ernesto was, was so self-absorbed and so awful that he quickly realizes this is not what I thought it was. And so he has this kind of sobering realization. He comes back from the land of the dead and his mission really does become to kind of save, it's a long story that I'm not going to get into, to save his family. It's fascinating though because people, as I've been reading kind of some of the reviews in Coco, this is one of the first Disney, especially Pixar films, that flips the narrative. Not only does it flip it from a kind of an American narrative to a non-American narrative, a Mexican narrative, but it also flips it from the dream of individual pursuit to the self-sacrifice of communal pursuit. In other words, this is the way that like, people far smarter than me have said it. When you think about your story, and when you think about the way you live your life, and when you think about the way anyone lives their life, there really are only two possible narratives. The first is your life for mine. That's the way, if you've seen Coco and Resto de la Cruz, lives his life literally. Your life for mine. I will do what I need to do and use you how I need to use you to get what I feel like makes me feel self-important. And the other is the way of the gospel. My life for yours. That I'm going to put all of my energy, all of my gifts, all of my resources into serving and ministering to you. That's why a counselor, I've said this to you before, one of the most profound questions a counselor has ever, ever said to me, he said, you know, it, we're, you're always basically doing one of two things. Manipulation, in all of your relationships, you're only ever doing one of two things. Manipulation, your life for mine, or ministry, my life for yours. And that's what Coco is beautifully about. And the question is, which one, which one is your life about? In this moment, Peter is saying, your life for mine. I don't want to be associated with you because it's going to bring me down a few notches with the Judaizers. And, and Paul says, no, brother, repent. That is not the way of the gospel. Because Jesus said, my life for yours, that we might say, my life for yours. Uh, so this is the exhortation. So the temptation, the invitation. Invitation is repent and remember the gospel. There's an exhortation too, and it's the same kind of idea. Paul's exhortation is simple. It's an invitation to repent, and it's an exhortation to 
Keep in step with the truth of the gospel. Okay, what in the world does that mean? Uh, one of the, my favorite ways to try to say it to my kids, it's definitely not unique to me, but it's a simple way to say the gospel. It, the gospel is much bigger than that. You can say the gospel is like the ocean, right, where a child can plan it, but an elephant can wait in it. That's true of the gospel, but the most, like the simplest way we can say it is this. You were so bad, Jesus had to die for you, and yet you were so loved, Jesus was glad to die for you. You were so bad. You were so broken. You were so messed up. You were so self-important. You were so self-obsessed that the only way for you to be redeemed was for Jesus to die for you. And yet, you were so valuable to God. You were so made in his image. You were so loved by him. You were so cherished and delighted in by him that he was glad. Hebrews 12 says Jesus went to the cross uh, for the joy set before him. The joy of restoring you and me to his image, to the image of God. Well, what in the world does that mean? Let's apply it and then we'll kind of close and keep it short tonight. How do we keep in step with that truth? Like, what does it look like for you to keep in step with the truth that I just said? You're so bad. Jesus had to die for you. You're so loved. Jesus was glad to die for you. What does it look like a life lived in step with the gospel? Let's just go for, I don't know, four like big campus issues typically, at least from my perspective. Here's the first. What do we do with like drinking and drugs? <laughs> like when I think about trying to describe this, this sounds so ridiculous, but you know what I'm saying? Substances, uh, like there's just never a way a way to say that as from my perspective that doesn't sound kind of cheesy. But what I mean is, what do you do with party life? What do you do with uh, drinking? What do you do with weed? What do you do with cocaine? What do you do with all that stuff? Here's how we do it. Here's the first thing: Jesus doesn't love you because you don't drink or smoke weed. Like that's just not why Jesus loves you, right? And we could say you are perfectly capable. Robert Murray McShane, the old Puritan, used to say, "In my heart is the seed of every sin." right? Uh, you, if you reduce the Christian life to avoiding these things uh, or av- avoiding certain things, you've missed the heart of the gospel. You've missed uh, why it, you've missed sometimes your own sinfulness because you really do think, some of you really do think you're better. You're a better Christian because you've not done those things. And some of you, if, you live, if you've lived in that and then done those things, then you feel like a worse Christian because you've made those choices and you're both in both ways. You're out. Of, you're out of touch or out of step with the gospel, right? Uh, you're so bad that maybe maybe it's not Jack and weed, but maybe it is. You are high on yourself and drunk on pride, and you don't even see it. Or maybe it is that you've made those choices, and you feel like because you've made those choices, there's no way for Jesus to meet you with grace and forgiveness, and you, you've forgotten that this is exactly why Jesus came. That he's come to obviously to lead you to repentance. Yeah, absolutely. But he, that's precisely why he came. He knew where he was, what he was dying for when he went to the cross for you. Second, talk about dating. So if the bad news of the gospel is true, this means you've made some mistakes. This means you've gone some places you never thought you would go. This means that sometimes there's that part of your heart that really does believe that life begins, life will truly begin when some boy or some girl thinks highly of you. And can we just admit, like, part of what the gospel does is it frees us to admit our crappiness. <laughs> it frees us to admit that we are a mess. 
it frees us to admit that we have done things. Like I, could, I will never forget the hell of living in a place where I was convinced Christianity meant avoiding these things. And then what happened for me is I started doing one of the things that I should have been avoiding. And can I just tell you that my world crumbled because I didn't have an understanding of the gospel. And part of my attraction even to RUF, like coming out of college and, you know, coming, thinking about ministry was this, that the gospel was so preached to me that I had the freedom to admit the truth of what I'd done and the freedom to admit the truth of where I'd been. And it also means that because you're so loved, you have the freedom to date and you have the freedom to be broken up with or to break up and for your heart to really be broken. But at the same time, for you to know your life isn't over because Jesus is your life. Jesus is your lover. Third, let's talk about roommates. This is always a fun one. <laughs> You're so bad. Jesus had to die for you. Here's what that means. You are hard to live with. Like, you're hard to live with. Like, your roommate might be annoying. You're annoying. Like, your roommate might make some stupid choices, as do you. Like, I'll never forget marriage counseling with a counselor, and she said, uh, this is one of the best questions you can ask yourself. What is hard about being in a relationship with me? And that literally might be a question you should ask your roommates. Hey, let's go to Starbucks or go to Drip or go to wherever. Chick-fil-A, whatever your place is, and say, hey, I got a question for you. What is hard about living with me? What is hard about being in a relationship with me? And man, just see where it goes, right? <laughs> it could go some beautiful places. It might go some terrible places. I don't know. But it frees you to say that, or at least ask the question. Um, and it frees you to do the forgiveness thing, right? If you are so loved that Jesus was glad to die for you, it frees you to minister, it frees you to have grace toward your roommates. Uh, fourth, let's talk for a second about anxiety and depression. This is a weird one. I was trying to go for an intangible one. Here's what I want to say. Of course you struggle with anxiety and depression. If you are broken, that means things inside you are broken. And that means it's okay to admit you're not okay. It's okay to seek the help you need medicinally, counseling-wise, uh, much less being able to uh, talk about it and break. We still, it's weird in 2018, I still think there sometimes is a stigma about mental health. And can I just say, if we believe the gospel and things really are that bad, that means we can admit that things really are that bad and have hope. Here's where the hope comes in, that Jesus knows that. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And that somehow in the miracle of the gospel it doesn't deny your brokenness. It actually embraces your brokenness and says Jesus has not only done something about this that's not going to take away your anxiety or your depression, but what it does is it can take away the stigma of not talking about it. And the other thing it does is it means that that's not the single thing that defines you. Uh, I mean, I, we, you've probably heard this before, but we have to move. Part of our struggle, my struggle and your struggle, is we treat the word Christian like it's an adverb or like an adjective instead of understanding that it is a noun. And so you can be, <laughs> if you are a Christian who struggles with depression, welcome to the club. Let's talk about it. But what that means is you can admit it, but it doesn't have to define you. Jesus alone gets to define you. I'll close with this. There's a poem I love, kind of getting this idea of the ways we're tempted to live before our image instead of living 
you know, in, in the step in step with the truth of the gospel. It's by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my faves. Uh, you know, and he wrote this actually when he was, if you know his story, he was a German a pastor in Germany uh, in the height of Nazi Germany, and he was one of the few pastors who really did stand up to Hitler and try to stop Hitler and what he was doing. And of course, he was imprisoned, and before he was hanged uh, in the in, in his imprisonment and killed, he wrote this little poem called "Who Am I." And what it, what it comes out of is he was struggling with his what we're talking about. He was struggling with how people saw him, with what he knew versus how other people saw him. And here's what he said. I'll close with this. It's a poem. It's called Who Am I? Here's how it goes. We'll close with it. Who am I? They often tell me I step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. And here's where it gets profound. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voice of birds, Thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectations of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once, a hypocrite before others and before myself, a contemptible, woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would wrestle with us in all of the various parts of what we talked about tonight. Uh, Wrestle with us in our stories. Wrestle with us in the ways that we are living for our image living for approval, or would you lead us to repent of that idol? It is a fatal idol that never gives any love. And Lord, yet you are waiting with open arms as the lover of our soul, as the friend of sinners, as the only one who said, my life for yours. And so, Lord, I pray that you would um, give us the joy of the gospel tonight. Invite us into the repentance, the constant repentance, the daily repentance of remembering the gospel, and bring every part of our life, Lord, and step with it, I pray. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. We all stand in our last hymn, All Glory Be Christ.